And it seems like everybody had a really special relationship with her, a really special relationship with that home. And his answer was that she just gave us the space to be. She gave us the space to be ourselves. Hello. Hello. Hi. My name is Kay Anderson, and you are listening to Lost Spaces, the podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. Every episode, I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories that they created there, and the people that they used to know. You know how sometimes studies get published and researchers have spent years and years poring over it and everyone upon reading the headlines and the the key takeaways of the report goes yeah we we already knew that well i think that happened recently because at the beginning of 2024 there was this report that came out that said basically aunties grandmothers other feminine figures are really important to the development of young queer lives because they provide emotional support they provide practical support and they're kind of this neutral person that is able to support that young person and it's really easy to scoff with these kind of things and be like oh well how many hours did they spend researching that i could have told them that but i was kind of having a think about it and it's actually something i don't know it's actually something that i hadn't really occurred to me because my family migrated to another country when i was really young and so i never had any female figures in my life other than my mother or I suppose teachers, but I think there's a power dynamic and there's other things going on there that means that that relationship isn't quite the same as one that you would have with an aunt or a grandmother. Anyway, in order to explore this some more and ask all the stupid questions that are bouncing around in my head, I sat down with the writer Barak Al-Zaid, who told me all about his grandmother, Mama Latifa, and her house, which acted as a safe haven and a magical space for Barak when he was growing up in 1980s and 1990s Kuwait. Along the way, we talk about different cultural understandings of the coming out journey. What happens when that coming out journey doesn't go quite according to plan? And most importantly, which of the characters from 1980s cartoon Thundercats is the most shaggable? And I think you know the answer to that already. Okay, let's get going. So you've talked about this Western concept of the coming out journey and how that might not neatly map on to your experience. Can you talk a bit more about that? I think in some ways I, along with my peers, would never necessarily talk about sex and sexuality to our parents. And so we have this 
you know, within the society that I grew up in, it wasn't, you wouldn't talk about like a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You wouldn't talk about having sex. You wouldn't talk about dating. You, you know, with your peers of the same gender, you would, you know, talk and gossip and, you know, fantasize. And that stuff definitely happened for me in a outward way with like male cousins, but it was always directed towards girls. So I always felt like that's a performance. That's something that I'm doing so that I can mask myself and survive. But I know that there are these percolating desires and there are these, these impulses and these urges that I feel for other boys and for men. And, you know, my first awareness of sexual desire came when I had an orgasm as a child uh, watching Thundercats. And it was this like, you know, Lionel is this brawny, hairy, super buff. Oh, what basic tastes, Lionel? No, Panthera, come on. Oh, I, truth, truth. <laughs> um, but I, you know, it's just, I was just common. What can I say? So unnuanced, but I like that, you know, hairy daddy vibe. But I, you know, I remember having that sensation when I got to adolescence. And in adolescence, I was like, how do I get that back? That like, that stroking, that feeling of engorgement, that feeling of pleasure. And I had that association with that masculine, hairy Lionel. And that's eventually, you know, in the dawn of the net and the age of computers, <laughs> that's what I clicked through and searched for is like gay, hairy men. That's, that's, you know, part of my coming out narrative to myself, I suppose. So they had to be gay, hairy men, not just regular hairy men. <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's what I recall. If memory serves me correctly. <laughs> Okay, but so going back to that original question about the Western concept of coming out and like embracing your sexuality and how that doesn't neatly map onto your experience, it sounds fairly similar to me. And I get that like there's less discussion between parents and, and children about dating and about how they're feeling and about uh, their emotional development in relation there's to less, their There's not less, there's no... There's no discussion. At what, it, what it is is it's, it's you do not, especially for girls, because girls and young women are unfairly given this burden of upholding family honor. And so the sanctity of their reputation and their bodies is, is prime, whereas boys and young men can go and philander around. And so there's obviously that, that double standard that I soon became aware of because my closest friend was was having to navigate that so if you were allowed to borrowing your word philander around did you philander around <laughs> no <laughs> it was ah. scary my philandering was uh, relegated to the internet but that's also the space where i first came out to somebody so i was chatting with my friend mel who i met through a theater group and I just told her like I, I'm gay and I, I want to meet somebody I feel really lonely and alone this was my senior year of high school and I was on 
chat rooms like Yahoo groups and MIRC and, and you know, those were just dumpster fires. <laughs> There's not really <laughs> places where you can go for conversation. And Mel introduced me to somebody who would become my first lover. And we were together and having sex for a month during the U.S. invasion into Iraq in 2003. Ah. Well, okay, so first of all, that does sound like philandering to me. I suppose it is. (laughs) (laughs) But second of all, I want to go back to that question because... It sounds as though there's quite similar experiences to what I would expect a Western experience to be. So I really want to kind of understand why it's different. I think what I'm trying to get at is there's an expectation in the Western construct of coming out that there is a before and an after, that you cannot truly and fully express yourself until you're out to everybody in your life. And that for me was never something that I recognized or needed. The reason that I came out to some friends was because I felt isolated and I wanted to have a sense of connection. I came out to my mother because I wanted her to understand who I was because we had always been super close and I became very distant, very angry, very depressed. Part of it was because I was repressing all the sexual desire. So I wanted to explain to her and give her context for my feelings. I assumed that she would accept me. So I think that that also runs counter the coming out narrative, especially in an Arab or Muslim context. Most often it's, oh, you get resistance from your family. Oh, you get resistance from like important people in your life. But I was raised that family is the most important thing. My mom had moved uh, from the United States to Kuwait and was estranged from her side of the family for almost 10 years. So we had this intergenerational trauma that I had grown up in and learned from. I understood that that healing journey had been completed and that I would always be accepted. So whether it was the self-assuredness that Mama Latifa had seeded in me or this witnessing that I bore to my mother and my father healing their relationship with my American side of the family, I felt confident that she would accept me. And that was not the case. She was very much under the Kuwaiti societal pressure and pressure from my father to contain the the family unit and present it in the best possible light to save the reputation and the honor. And so... I had never planned to come out to my father. There, there was no sort of extended list of people. I was just happy living my life at university, feeling a sense of myself as being whole and complete, feeling that connection with my mother that I felt like I had rekindled. I didn't feel like I needed to be out and proud to everybody all the time, everywhere in my life. And their reaction my mother basically forcing me and coercing me to come out to my father. And then the two of them collaborating on this letter that my mother delivered to me, telling me, we do not accept this. Your grandparents will never accept this. You will ruin the marriage prospects and the lives of your siblings was devastating to me. And that is actually what I think serves as a catalyst for 
needing to express myself in art and writing to to grapple with these issues of gender and sexuality and to do so in a much more public forum through my memoir, through my art, through my writing. But, but you do have a relationship with your mother now. Oh yeah, my relationship with her is amazing. She and I went through a healing cycle that we carried out over the period of almost 10 years between when I came out to her in 2003 and around 2010, 2011, which very interestingly parallels that cycle of estrangement and healing she had with her own parents. And she also continued to grow and develop and and change herself, but it was because I I challenged her and I confronted her and I I explained to her that she could not have a relationship with the without having a relationship with the whole part of me. Yeah. And and this is a problematic question because I'm asking you to speak on behalf of your mother and you might not have had this conversation or any insight into this. But you talked about her feeling the pressure to uphold the honour of your family in QAT society and being focused on the ramifications of what you being a queer person might mean for other people in your family and your family's reputation. Do you think that that was her primary driver in reacting the way she did? Or was there a fundamental homophobia? Like, was it all about saving face or was it... A- I think, she, yeah, I think she was afraid of the implications and the consequences. It was uh, fear. Um, and, you know, <laughs> homophobia has that word in it. So I think the two are inextricably linked, but I don't know that I would use that language to describe her attitude towards me. It was the the privileging and the prioritizing of saving face, reputation, honor was more important than whatever her attitude was about about the thing, which may have been, you know, her natural inclination may have been, oh, this is this is wrong. This is, you know, she witnessed the news around the the 80s and early 90s AIDS crisis. So I'm sure many people, many adults who've been following the news had some of those narratives. Um, but she was so embedded in Kuwaiti society at that point, and her values were so uh, intertwined, and she had so bought into this this culture of fear that's perpetuated around those values that I think that that was the priority for her was protecting that. And I, I really want to emphasize that she and I are very much healed. We have a beautiful relationship. She adores my partner. Uh, she is an advocate on my behalf towards my father. She, she is, a, a dream of a mother, and I am so grateful. An advocate towards my father, does that mean that maybe things aren't so great with your father? Yeah, so I gifted my mother a wedding portrait of my partner and I, and uh, she has it in her office, and my father came in shortly after I gave it to her and he was like, I don't, you know, I don't like this, put this away. And my mother pushed back. She said, no, it brings me joy. It's, it's not for you to decide. This is my office. Nobody comes in here anyway. 
And so she stood up to him. And I heard this from my grandmother, actually, from my mother's mother. And my mother hadn't wanted to tell me because she didn't want me to be upset about the exchange, but I just felt so grateful. I felt so taken care of. And it really felt like a full circle moment. And there have been other instances, I think, that, that also my, you know, my relationship with my father is fraught, but it's amicable, it's cordial. I know that he wants me to be safe and comfortable, psychologically secure, financially secure, and he does what he can within his you know, domain of influence to secure those things for me. But in this area, it's, is he's very unyielding. You know, he doesn't accept that I have a valid marriage. He doesn't accept that I'm, I'm queer. Mm-hmm. Okay. I still have outstanding quotes, so sorry to like keep banging this drum. I, I'm going to want to draw a line under it here. So I'm clear, just closing off the conversation about the difference between the Western concept of coming out and, and that in the Arabic world. It's that coming out in the Western world is the destination, the thing that's expected of you, whereas that's not quite the case elsewhere. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. I think we also have ways in which we are ourselves in Kuwaiti society, in in contemporary Kuwaiti society. It's like not not necessary for people in for Kuwaitis in Kuwait to come out to their parents and their extended family and things like that, but you know, we have circles of friends. We have queer gatherings and gay gatherings. We have really big parties. There's all these things, these settings, these spaces that uh, we create for ourselves. Um, I have a privileged status having, you know, these dual identities of being Kuwaiti and American so that I, I feel like I have the right to be my whole authentic self with my parents, with my family. Or at least mm-hmm. with my with my mother, because that's the relationship that I really like, value and want to honor. But I think most other people, most of my peers, wouldn't dream of sharing those desires or those expectations with their parents or family, because I'm you know I'm an outlier. I'm not representative of yeah. of Kuwaiti yeah. society. So I have a friend who was telling me. You know, he's the youngest boy, and typically in, in Kuwaiti society, the the father builds a house for each of his sons because they, um, it's a, I just want to name that it's a, a very wealthy and privileged society for many of its citizens, and the government um, subsidizes a lot and gives out things like free loans for, um, or very, like zero interest loans for married couples to build properties, things like that. So this guy, he's queer, and his father had built a house for his eldest son who got married, and then this other son who got married, and then his this sister got, you know, a house with her husband, you know, because their family built, you know, so there's like everybody has these spaces, but he was still stuck in his family home and relegated to this sort of subaltered status, this sort of lesser status like not quite you know he's an adult with a job and he's still living in his um 
you know, his childhood bedroom and he tried to move downstairs into the basement and carve out a space there, but that wasn't permitted really because it was, uh-huh. it still wasn't fitting into the schema of Kuwaiti society, but he can't be a hundred percent out to his family to say like, y'all, I'm not going to get married to a woman, but I still need my own space. So I guess that's sort of a way in which this particular society can resist this coming out narrative because it's not possible for some people. And then the effects that it has to not be able to be yourself or be yourself authentically plays out in different ways because it's such a family-oriented society. So we still know who we are. We don't repress ourselves in that way. We, like I said, have our friend groups and our... um, you know, these safer spaces that we come together and, you know, for the people, I don't live there anymore, but for the people who live there, they, they have that and it's, it's really a part of their life and their limitations or their restrictions often happen when they, they cross into the, the space of the family unit or the family home. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and so you've talked about the privilege of your identity that being um, both Kuwaiti and American and how that means you move through society in different ways and th- th- have the privilege of different thoughts. Maybe privilege is the wrong word. But some of that is also about Mama Latifa's house and what you learned there, right? Yeah, absolutely. So why is Mama Latifa's house important? So what was special about Mama Latifa's house? I asked my cousin this, my older cousin this, a while ago, because I wanted to know, was I alone in my experience or did my other cousins also feel that? And it seems like everybody had a really special relationship with her, a really special relationship with that home. And his answer was that she just gave us the space to be. She gave us the space to be ourselves. So in a way, I wasn't that special. It wasn't that she had singled me out and saw me for who I was and took care to create the safer space for me. She did it for all of us. It was just her her mode. She brought us all together. Mm -hmm. I think I always had a sense of being different. And one of the ways that emerged was in Kuwaiti society, spaces are very gendered, especially Kuwaiti society of the 80s and and 90s when I was growing up. So you walk into a living room and there's areas where the men sit, where the women sit, and depending on the household, how conservative it is, um, it could be that they're distributed in separate rooms. And I had a lot of different experiences with different ways in which these kinds of spaces, these living public, you know, the sort of, you know, semi-public living spaces uh, were arranged. And I always just felt much more comfortable in and around the women in the women's spaces and in and around the girls. Mm. And is it one of those situations where up to a certain age, no one cares? And then when you get to a certain age, they're like, okay, now you need to be a man. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's embedded in Islam as well. There's a lot more porousness and a lot more crossing borders 
especially for boys into the into the women or girls domain up until a certain age and then like you can't pray with women anymore you shouldn't really be socializing mm. but a lot of those structures and a lot of those uh a lot of those frameworks were not very active in Mama Latifa's house and i think that's part of what made it so special is that i would go out to other relatives houses and it, it would feel uh, much more kind of segmented but then i would return to this really like wonderful beautiful space of mama natifa's house and we were all just very liberated that space is actually really critical for my understanding of myself because my first experience my first core memory that is so visceral and so important to the entire trajectory of my life happened with Mama Latifa and it was directly related to gender and gender expression. Ah. Well, tell me about it. So, I grew up in her house for the first few years of my life. She had this space um on the second floor. It was a two-floor house. She had the space on the second floor that was for her sons and their wives and their children as they were starting out and getting ready to move into the homes that they had built. And so she was one of my favorite people i cooked with her i played with her i prayed with her and one of the things that she carried around with her like an emblem was the henna that she had on her palms and her feet and i loved that that was one of the things that i saw around me that girls had that women had that i just was really attracted to that adornment and when i was maybe Three, four, five. I asked her to put henna on me, and she agreed. And that's something that most people would not for a boy at any age, because how you're perceived in Kuwaiti society is a reflection back on your family. So even though children are permitted a lot more leeway. uh and are given more permission there's still a container any sort of visible or persistent signs of difference are frowned upon and so it's really radical that she would permit me to have that and i remember her putting the henna on my hands and the way that they would do it is they take the balls of the the clay they put it in your palm and then they wrap it with uh you know rags with torn fabric and you sleep with it at night. Mm-hmm. And then when you wake up in the morning, it's really vibrant and bright and lasts for a couple of weeks. And I just remember as she was wrapping it, I could feel the squish, the cold clamminess. I remember her just glowing with warmth, with love. I remember her eyes just shining with this delight and I had this feeling of panic. I somehow knew even though I don't know why or how. I knew that my classmates would laugh at me. I knew that my father would be angry at me. All this all this knowledge was so embodied that I just ripped started ripping the the wrappings off. Mm. And it 
had stayed long enough that there was a little bit of a stain. I remember getting some remarks or questions from other kids in my pre-kindergarten class. And there's also a part of the story where I had this perception that my parents both disapproved. And when I spoke to my mother about it years later when I was interviewing her for my memoir and recalling this experience to her and my reaction and memory of it, she said, oh, actually, I was really happy. She said, I thought, looking back now, I realized maybe I was a bit naive, but I thought, oh, Barak just wants to be like his grandmother. He wants to be just like Mama Latifa. And that made her happy. And I'm sure that made Mama Latifa happy too. I don't know what my dad's reaction response was in that moment. I was a very sensitive kid, so adult me, looking back, wonders, did I catch a glance? Did I catch an inflection of disgust? So that, that I would say, was the very clear moment, not only of a sense of difference, but also this incredible sense of empowerment. Mama Latlefa gave me this gift and this permission to be myself. Hmm. Yeah. So I'm slightly struggling with what it is you're saying because you are talking about this feeling of empowerment, this sense of empowerment, but you're also talking about the fact that you had that moment of realization and that you pulled back. And and my reading of that is that you weren't empowered in that moment. So are you kind of saying that you had that moment of empowerment and that even though it was fleeting, that has like stuck with you and like that's the lesson? What I'm trying to say is she planted a seed that persisted my entire life. And so anytime that I had a sense of doubt in myself or a sense of wrongness, I had whether conscious or not, whether I was able to actually overcome the feelings of doubt and the pressures of society trying to thwart and destroy my self-expression. I always had that as a very core foundational memory Mm. of this woman who raised a whole family of sons and daughters on her own after her husband passed away of somebody who had the vision to purchase and invest in land for her sons so that they could build houses next to each other. Her priority was family. And Mm -hmm. unlike I think many family systems in Kuwaiti society, their priority was uh, how does society perceive us? How do we present ourselves in a way that makes us acceptable in society? And maybe that was part of her attitude as well. But as she, she was somebody who was minoritized too. She was an orphan. She was the second wife to my grandfather. So she grew up with a minoritized status in this society. And, and I, I feel like she understood that some of the structures didn't work for everybody. And they benefited some people more than others. I don't think that would be her language, but I think she mm-hmm. brought that sense of safety and security into my relationship with her and into the space of her home. Mm. And who did you get to be there that you didn't get to be elsewhere? I think there was just a, a relaxing 
uh, an untangling from the responsibilities of having to succeed at school so that I could go to a good university. There was a, a relaxing out of for some of my cousins who were female of, of like the, you know, constantly surveilling eyes of, of society. We just had our, our spaces upstairs to play our video games, to watch our anime and manga and to just play. Yeah. But you, you got to play elsewhere, right? Mm -hmm. So what was it about that space that was different? I think it's the fact that it was the family home. You know, it was it was where everybody orbited. I mean, I my impression, I'm not speaking from actual lived experience, other than when I would go to visit my other elder relatives' homes, because my father had his older siblings, his sis older sisters and brothers, and they were the matriarchs and patriarchs of their respective families. Mm -hmm. So we would go to those houses during the religious holidays and things like that, but it was always very formal. Even when we would go just to say hello, it was like you all sit in the chair and you, you try to be still and you drink your tea and you listen to the adults talk. There wasn't play after a certain age in those spaces. But... In Mama Tepa's house, up until I graduated and left for college, we were we were given, yeah, that space to ourselves. We didn't have to be anything except for what we wanted to be in those moments. I mean, it's different, like being in my basement at home and playing video games, or being in my room and reading, you know, on my bed. I feel like that was really a third space for us, especially because. Kuwait, especially at that time, didn't really have third spaces for youth. If I was doing activities like drama and theater or track and field, running track and field, it was these were things that happened at school. So I'd already been at school for, you know, seven or eight hours, and then I spent an additional couple of hours. But it was all, it was like fun and enjoyable. And I got to make friends at, at things like speech and debate team and Model UN. But those weren't, you were still performing, you know, you were still being a good, you know, student, a good kid. There were still adults supervising. If you wanted to socialize with friends, you went to the mall. There was really nothing else to do. You could go to a restaurant, you could go to like the American chains like Applebee's and Chili's and Friday's and you could eat uh, or you could go and walk around in a mall. You could go to a movie, but you still had this surveillance system mounted around you. Everybody's, everybody knows everybody. Everybody is related to everybody else. And so one little slip up can trickle back and reflect badly. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems so simple, but that home that Mama Natlifa created for us within her home was really sacred and really precious and really protected. Mm. And so do you think that uh, Mama Latifa intentionally set out to create that space in that way or that it was just accidental and as an extension of her personality? I don't know if it was intentional or accidental. 
I just know that she was a strong enough person that she could define the space on her terms. I think a lot of people do things because of this is how they're supposed to be done. The kids are supposed to sit and they're supposed to be quiet and, and they're supposed to spend all their time amongst the adults learning how to be an adult. And we, we, we would come down. We would come down for the cake and the tea. and Well, yeah, there's food. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but then we would like <laughs> gobble it up and run back upstairs, you know. And, and I, again, like I can't speak for other people's experiences in their respective matriarchal patriarchal homes but when i would go over to uh my dad's older relatives my experience was very different i would just have to sit and be polite and be bored while the adults talked so somehow mama latifa created a space in which the adults felt comfortable with letting us have this this freedom and this play. Maybe that happened at other people's grandparents' houses. Uh, I, I I would be curious and and eager to to hear more if like there were more of these kind of liberatory spaces outside of you know gender and sexuality and giving people the permission to be themselves. But like you know, did people play um, to that extent throughout their entire you know childhood and adolescence? I think it's also like the 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 genders were 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 integrated. You know, we had um, I had like up to ten other cousins at any given point on those weekend lunches, those weekend days, and there was no pressure to like the boys play here and the girls play here, or like the boys play outside and the girls play inside. You know, there was no there was no expectation. We weren't corralled or pressured or encouraged in a way that might have happened or shame in other people's homes. Yeah, or shame. It was just like, I mean, we're all kind of nerdy. None of us were good at sports. You know? <laughs> so what do you think then, having access to that space, Mama Latifah's house, enabled you to become? I think just like with the, with the anecdote or the story around the henna, I think it gave me a sense of self-assuredness and also a sense of how to sustain and nourish myself because community spaces are still really important to me and bringing people together around food and pleasure is still a really important way that I express myself and that I connect with other people in that way. So I think she gave me tools that I still use into my adulthood to connect with other people and to build relationships with other people. Mm -hmm. So who do you think you would be if you didn't have Mama Latifa in her house? I think I would have less of a, a, a connection and an attachment to Kuwait as a whole. She, she really defined what family meant for me and brought us all together. And when she passed away, because it, we all circled around her orbit, I felt like we didn't have this gravitational pull anymore. So all of us flung away from each other, um, especially my, my parents' generation, the, the aunts and uncles. I think she was, she was the sun we orbited around. So that's one aspect is that, that feeling and that connection to Kuwait. I think I would not care to have a relationship 
with Kuwait if that wasn't nurtured and cultivated throughout many formative years by her love and her loving, you know, embrace. Mm -hmm. I think I also wouldn't have the same sense of safety and self-assuredness, a desire for my sense of self to be fully presented to the world. I'm not saying that I do that always successfully. I think we're all on this journey of trying to be who we're meant to be. But I feel like she gave me that sense of entitlement and she created that that desire to fight for that, to be able to express myself, to share my journey uh, around the, the, the conflict and the healing that happened with my family around my sexuality. That's two important elements. So that, that connection back to the country and that also that, that sense of self. I feel like I wouldn't have that. Do you have any memories of queer spaces that you want to share? Well, if you do, why not get in touch? I want to create the biggest online record of people's memories and stories of queer spaces and clubbing and socializing, but I need your help. Go to lostspacespodcast.com and find the section share a lost space to tell me all about what it is you got up to. You can also reach out to me on Facebook and Instagram, where my handle is Lost Spaces Pod. Find out more about Barak by visiting his website, barakalzaid.com, or follow him on Instagram or X, where his handle is Barak Star. If you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate if you took the time to subscribe, leave a review on your podcast player of choice, or just tell other people who you think might be interested in giving it a little listen too. My name's Kay Anderson, and you have been listening to Lost Spaces. <laughs>